Hello and welcome to Chats, a television podcast, season 14, The Chatsovers. On this season of Chats, we are covering the HBO drama, The Leftovers. My name is Expert Commander, a.k.a. Alan, and I'm joined by Intellectual Observer, who also goes by Magellan in some circles. Um, seems like you... Seems like you uh, have a bit of a pattern going on in your behavior. Some sort of pattern... I'm an expert commander, and I command this podcast to move forward. Ah, oh, shit, dude, we stopped the pacing. <clears throat> Do you know where those names came from? No. The same Wu-Tang name generator that made Childish Gambino, because Whoa. we're going to talk about Wu-Tang Clan this week. Give me mine again, please. Intellectual Observer. Oh. Intellectual Observer, and I'm the expert commander. Yeah, that's... I, I specifically like dug into an old Reddit thread to find like which because there are a lot of Wu-Tang name generators and yeah. I was like which what's the one that he that Donald Glover used and I tested it and on the one I used if you type Donald Glover you get Childish Gambino so it, this is I used the right one I did the, I did the work man oh it's like a preset based on the letters in your name or something exactly or right did they uh... I don't know why how it, maybe it just creates a random seed for every combination of letters somehow I don't know how many variants they have but yeah that's how i think it works hmm hmm, hmm. you seem suspicious hmm. about the wu-tang name generator no nah, i just don't love mine you don't like intellectual observer that's kind yeah, of what being it's... a podcaster is yeah i just kind of want to break i want to have like a new persona and i just feel like that's a little too you know like people would be like oh yeah you totally are which i don't like i want to be okay. a new person let me put another name in and see what it gives you Thank i want to make you happy i want to give you the, the the okay so i'm gonna just put a little extra spice on your name okay so oh this one's good <laughs> magellan from this day forward you will now be known as sarcastic warlock yes yeah. <laughs> there it is sarcastic spell yeah. s-a-r-k-a-s-t-i-k yeah that's sarcastic good. warlock wow okay congratulations thank you congratulations congratulations it's a big week y'all if you can't tell we're here to talk about the wu-tang clan uh australia by the shins uh time travel dimensionality and of course perfect strangers and also the leftovers i guess yeah that's there too it's, it's involved 
<laughs> in the whole stew. We're back after a brief break, Magellan. You did your traveling. I hope you Standing did. You enjoy your trip. We're not that. That's for episode two. We're gonna get there. Standing tall. Just stuck in my head. Sorry. It's it'll be it 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 be stuck in your head. It shall be stuck in your head for a bit, and that's okay because it's a great song. First of all, yeah. Did you enjoy your trip? Did you have a good time overall for the kids? Yeah, I went to France with some of my students. Pretty good. Pretty good time, I'd say. Pretty good. Pretty good time. I love that. Yeah. And I am happy that we're back, too, because The Leftovers Season 3, new territory, uncharted territory for Alan and Magellan. And we are here to talk about the first two episodes of this wacky new season of TV, as we are wont to do. Specifically this week, we're talking Season 3, Episode 1, The Book of Kevin, as well as Season 3, Episode 2, don't be ridiculous. The Book of Kevin was written by Damon Lindelof and Patrick Somerville. It was directed by Mimi Leader, and it aired April 16th, 2017. Magellan, can you read the summary of The Book of Kevin for me, please? I surely, surely can. In this episode of The Leftovers, three years have passed since the guilty remnant invaded Miracle. Kevin works as a cop again. Rumors rise that the seventh anniversary of the sudden departure will bring an apocalyptic catastrophe. Okay, we're here. We've crossed the we've crossed the Rubicon. We're in brand new leftovers territory. Yeah, you've never seen season three, right? Right, right, right. Not even a minute of it. I've mentioned before there are a couple of key details that I know. Other than that, this is all brand nizzity new to me. And I was fascinated by it throughout. I, I, when I visited you last weekend, I, I got to hang out with Magellan for a weekend. We ran a 5K. It was very fun. It was wonderful. Uh, I, I briefly wanted to like just tease you a little bit about like what to expect. So I watched this like on the week when you were in France. And I was like, they sure did make a third season of The Leftovers. That's all I said. <laughs> was they really said, let's make a third season of the show. What can we we'll do that about? And they did it. Yeah. They succeeded. Yeah. How did you feel? Who I mean, you know, I think the thing to appreciate about The Leftovers as a TV show is that they just they just go there. They just make big choices. And we've talked before about how a lot of the time those big choices can feel kind of corny because uh, I feel like that's just the risk you take when you make big creative choices. And then they can also feel like you're watching a TV show that is behaving with a boldness and a self-confidence, uh, unlike any other TV show. Uh, I mean, what other TV show starts their third season by just doing a sort of tone? They did another tone poem thing. This time it was in kind of like an antebellum utopian community sort of thing, mm-hmm. uh, kind of an 1800s guilty remnant-esque vibe. Um Maybe it's some kind of doomsday cult or something. I think that was the sense I got that they kept thinking the world was going to end and it kept not ending. And then, you know, society started to leave them behind and mock them. Yeah. Um, Which feels related to what's going on with Matt Jameson and Michael and John and some of the other characters. Um, But this is an episode that starts there, does a lot of, storytelling simply through visuals and music um and beards and and then brings you back to the present <laughs> to the day after the end of season two 
and says, uh, yeah, okay, so like the bad guys or whatever from season two, you're going to watch in the reflection of one of their glasses as they get blown up by a drone strike from the U.S. government. Anyway, three years later, Kevin has a beard now. And he's yeah. riding a horse. <laughs> riding a horse in Texas. <laughs> and you're sure. like, guys, you are writing this show as if you'll never be allowed to write a television <laughs> show ever again in your whole life. And it really reads pretty like pretty awesome. That. It's pretty good. That's such a good way of putting it that it re- it feels like they're, this is all being done illicitly. Like they could not have gotten this third season. They got it mm-hmm. through hell and high water. And I know that part of that is because it was compressed from a 10-episode season down to, I think, what is it, eight? Um, eight? yeah. So, like, there are things that happen faster than I would usually expect for The Leftovers, but what we do get is like, whoa, really? Wow. Oh, okay. Yeah, all right. I'm mm-hmm. on board. I, and I felt that almost at every single scene in both of these episodes was like, oh, you know what? Sure. Um, that That's definitely The Leftovers. And I want to talk briefly then about that that first scene. The great disappointment um, is what's being depicted here. I had to watch the scene twice to fully get it because it is all music. It's uh, choral music and uh, acting wordlessly. Um, so it's kind of difficult to fully understand initially. But yeah, it's 1844. Uh, a subtle detail I didn't realize until I read about this is that this takes place, you'll never guess where, in Adelaide, Australia. Uh, because the great disappointment in the teachings of William Miller, the preachers who claimed that Jesus would return to the earth, uh, those teachings made it to Australia. So this first scene's in hmm. Adelaide, which is already Whoa. setting us up for Australia, believe it or not. Uh, and like putting us in the mindset of, of like religious fanaticism and belief in something significant happening in the world changing because of a big event. Um, really striking stuff. Uh, I think I was ready for it after the cave scene. I was like, yeah, you're gonna do this again. You're not gonna tell me what this means, but it'll kind of make sense in a grand sense in a grand way later. Sure, I'm ready for it. Um, yeah, and this is honestly even more le- legible to me than the cave one, uh, yeah. just because yeah. it's literally the same sort of thing as what's happening with characters that we see, where they think that there's going to be some kind of a rapture or a people are going to return or something. Um, like it's a more one to one thing as opposed to the cave the cave person thing which felt uh a bit more abstract i think yeah and i i did some reading and this is the the great disappointment it's a millerite movement that this guy this in, in 1844 was like yep it's gonna come guys everybody get ready if you do the right thing and you wear the right clothes and you pray hard enough you're gonna get to be taken when jesus comes back to earth mm-hmm. and just the the way that this opening does the repetition and shows this, it's focusing on the mother and her enthusiasm and the family and the community all going up on the you know taking the ladders ladders come up a couple times in this episode um taking the ladders up to the roofs of the house and being like here it comes and then oh i guess it wasn't tonight and then we come to back to the priest and he like crosses out a date and says no but for sure it's right. uh it's this next week and doing that enough times that eventually yeah the father and the son are like all right we're leaving we you also learn from this is like a non-visual like non-verbal they sold everything they owned. They like gave away their their goat and like all of their possessions to do this because they're like we don't need these anymore. So, right. the tragedy then that she lost everything she has and her family, and she's now a woman with nothing, uh, because she believed in something that wasn't real. Uh, yeah, and that heartbreaking moment towards the end where there's like a storm that comes in, and it's clear that she thinks like finally this is it, and then she just gets really wet. 
in the storm yeah is heartbreaking too big time and it sets us up for yeah is this a story like because it pans elegantly right over to the guilty remnant to evie sleeping you, in that compound what a cool visual idea by the way she's wearing white so you're like is this just the pre guilty remnant like is this an early right. variant or something and we see evie and like you said this part is exactly where we left off you know uh uh, Meg is still there, and she's still talking about, like, oh, they're going to come for us. And then when that camera poked through the compound, I was like, oh, my God, what? Re- what's going on? Are they, like, breaking in? And it, we learned that the Guilty Remnant, you know, didn't uh, leave this compound for so long. So Evie doesn't even know that Jarden is, like, a militarized zone at this point. Um, and she steps outside, well, was, and yeah. And it was the next day, was it not? Right. It, it This all happened really fast. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like some sort of martial law or something, but it's just everything's in rubble, and uh, there's not a lot of people around. And she looks up, and then what's that? Oh, that's a plane. That's a some sort of plane or drone, and they are burned. They are they are bombed basically, mm-hmm. um, out of the world. Which is you know that moment in season one where the guy was like, "You, te- Kevin, you tell me, and I'll get rid of the guilty remnant." It finally came right. true. Right. Um, the government could have done it at any point, and they finally did. It seems like a strong escalation because the Guilty Remnant, I don't think, are entirely gone. I don't think that this was the only quote-unquote cell of them. But No, definitely a- not. Because we saw their central leadership in Season 2. We know that they're all over the place. Yes, but this was a significant one because these are the people who attacked Jarden last season. So Right, these seem to be the most militant sect of the Guilty Remnant, for sure. And so now the, the, the Remnant is on the back foot in a major way. And then mm-hmm. we just settle back into, yeah, what what is the standard of life here in Jarden? I had some sort of thought that Kevin would initially be going home to Mapleton. I don't really know why, considering everybody that matters to him is here. So it just, yeah, it makes more logical sense that he would dig in roots in Jarden. Yeah. I was surprised that we stayed here. I mean, it seems like we're going to go to Australia or stuff's yeah. going to happen there. If the intro is there and then, uh, episode two, we'll talk more about some of the things that are pulling us to Australia. But yeah, I, I was surprised to see three years later that, like you're saying, our our clan, the Garveys, have, have laid down roots here and decided that this is the place that they're going to live. And uh, more or less, it seems like there's a new normal and a sense of stability. When the last time we saw Jarden, it was like a bacchanalia of you know, whatever the heck was Bad going EDM on. EDM and sex. Yeah. 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 Uh, and I think these are the people, though, that they stayed to help fix things. Like, that's why Kevin and the Murphys and all of them stayed. Is like, well, somebody has to be here or else this becomes a wasteland. So we might as well, like I said, dig in roots and, like, become the the forces of power and good in Jarden, which is why Kevin is like, I guess I'll be a cop and why Tom... Once again, is like, I guess I'll do what an adult tells me to do instead of just going on my own. And he also, I mean, he, cho- he chose to become a cop. But, like, I want Tom to, like, go out on his own and live his life. I want him to <laughs> stop following what people do for with him. Yeah. Um, I felt weird about him being a cop, too. Me, too. Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard to, uh, you know, like... It's one thing to say Tom is with the family and he's kind of found peace with that and he's accepted like Kevin's his his dad through and through and there's something nice about that. And yeah. then there's the part of it where it's like and he's a 
cop, and okay. his dad's a cop. I don't love that so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the Garveys have a lot of power in in Jarden here now. Right, right. And it's just weird navigating that. But continuing through this, this sort of like a re-exploration of all the characters we know and love. Kevin and Tom are dealing with a uh, group of people trying to come into Jarden. It seems like they're not doing wristbands anymore. They've lightened up uh, restrictions a little bit. And mm-hmm. these guys well, the visitor bring visitor center exploded. There's so. no more visitor center. True. How are they going to yeah. process anything? Um, yeah. Some guys want to bring in a giant inflatable Gary Busey, which um, I don't know yep. if you saw my notes, but I have trivia about this. Um, Is it on purpose that it looks like Donald Trump? No. Thankfully... I think most of the season was filmed before Trump got elected, but got it. it does look okay. a little bit like Trumpy. That's true. Um, Gary Busey is one of the people who we, the celebrities that we saw get departed in that TV in the bar in season one. Um, but he was not the showrunner's first choice to be the giant inflatable. It was actually going to be Anthony Bourdain. Um, and he oh, didn't, but he then had didn't it. He actually no, he, die? well, no, he didn't. This is the thing that's always confusing. He died in 2018. Uh, so he was still alive. He declined to be... He said, you guys can have the rights to use my name and my face in season one, but you don't have the rights to make me an inflatable balloon. Which is like... I wish I could read way more about that. I would fair, love to hear that conversation. Fair king. <laughs> you got us there. Yeah. I, you, it's like, you got you guys can use my rights, but no inflatable. Like, okay, thank... All right. Yeah, Anthony Warden, fair enough. And then a year later, yeah, he did tragically pass away. Um. Yeah. So they're they're dealing with that stuff. People are bringing things into Jarden. It just everything feels a little weird. You mentioned to me that this felt like leftovers fan fiction, and I think we say that a lot. Like when we watch new seasons of shows, and we're like, "What is this? What's the new normal? What is the show about?" Um. Can you speak a little bit more to that feeling? Because I think the next couple of big scenes are all about like, "Oh, I guess that's what we. I guess that's what Nora does, or what Matt's whole deal is now." Yeah. I mean, I think since there's the three year time jump. There's a lot of, there's this mix of like, what is, since there's a three-year time jump, we have to tell you where all the characters are, and we need to do these things to show that time has passed. So, like, Kevin has a beard, he's riding a horse for some reason, he's a cop again, like, okay, that's within the scope maybe of the leftovers, but it feels... Like you're having some fun with it. Um, But then when we start to see characters interact and return, like when we see Dean in this episode. Yeah. And it's like, wait, hold on, Dean, you were gone for a season. Whose like thing is this? Fan fiction is this. And then when we see that John and Lori are like together now and running grifts together and stuff, it's like, uh, mom, pick me up. (laughs) They reshuffled all the character dynamics. Yeah, so, you know, they're doing a handful of things that are, like, following logically from where we left the characters, and then I think a handful of things that are meant intentionally to surprise us, um, to communicate that time has passed, and maybe also just to communicate that and they're, like, everything's on the table, right? Right. If If John and Lori are making out three years after you last saw them, what's to stop us from fully paying off the promise that you get at the very end of the episode where you see Nora old and them doing like a 30 year or 40 year time jump. Uh, and who knows who's kissing who at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it creates this feeling of like, 
excitement, but also dissociation, I think, in the way that I would feel dissociated from a piece of fan fiction or find it hard to suspend my disbelief at first because you have to like meet the author of it where they're at and learn what it is they're doing to the universe to make it their own so that Mm -hmm. you can then like truly inhabit that story and, and follow them there. So by the end of the second episode, I think I was there, but definitely in this first one, it's like, okay, wait, hold on. So Michael and Matt are like best friends now. Okay. Got it. Got it. Got it. Sounds good. And I think a lot of it isn't even going to be that important in the long term because, yeah, um, people are going, we're going to be leaving for Australia. And I don't know how many of these people are coming versus how many are staying. Like, for example. It's uh, time to put the ear covers on, you might say. It is time to put the ear covers on. (laughs) Jill leaving was the first one where I was like, oh, are we just like, we're just like shuffling the cast. Like, we don't need Jill anymore. The society has progressed beyond the need for Jill Garvey, I guess. we're post we're post-Jill. I guess she's just going to go live on her own. Do we? She's in uh, college, I think. Yeah. So she's going to go to college. It's kind of a weird moment that she just like talks to her dad for a f- couple minutes outside of the house and is like, all right, anyways, I'm off. That actress is no longer in the show. They just they just wrote her off. What? Kind of, That's it? Yeah. I'm pretty sure. Uh, to my knowledge, she's not coming back. No. Yeah, I like Jill. Yeah, she's fine. That sucks. Margaret Um. Yeah, there's like some ways that they write off characters that I'm just thinking, oh, oh, yeah, all right, I guess that's a way to do it. But whatever, I really like what we're we're going on to do, especially as of episode two. So, you know, this episode does set up some good mysteries. Um, mainly one, the main one is that people in general here seem to be worried that the seventh anniversary is going to be the rapture, as the guilty run predicted, as according to Matt Jameson, the Bible predicted, seven years after. A disappearance is when we get the rapture, the like apocalyptic event uh, of some sort. So in a way, he is the Miller, the Millerites being like, everything's going to be gone, guys. Just get ready and be ready for it. And we know Mm -hmm. Matt Jameson, not exactly up on the up and up 100% all the time. So it's called into question pretty quickly there. Um, But we also get, speaking of mysteries, we see Nora again, who's broken her arm for mysterious reasons. Um, which we find out later. And uh, and you mentioned Dean. You know, Dean just comes back to tell Kevin, like, hey, some fucked up stuff's going on. I think, uh, <laughs> what does he say? Like, I think dogs are taking over. Yeah, he basically says to Kevin that he thinks that dogs have become people and awesome. have infiltrated the government. And uh, that's another moment where it's like, Okay, this doesn't feel like that didn't fully feel faithful to the Dean character from season one um, because it felt so far afield of like what he was thinking a couple seasons ago. Um, Mm -hmm. So that felt like a moment of like it's played as a funny moment, I think. Um, But it makes you wonder why is he here exactly? Um, why are we doing this? I guess it's just to show that Kevin has fully come around to the idea that like what happened to him has no fantastical explanation. Yes. Um, but I don't know. They did my man Dean a little dirty here, I think. Dirty Dean. Yeah. Dirty Dean. And they're done dirt cheap as they say. (laughs) Yes, I agree. It's, it's a, it's a weird follow up to the Dean plot. 
I never expected it. There was another couple moments in this that I was like, really? That that random little thing from season one that I only remember because we just watched it? Okay, sure. Like, I, I definitely, yeah. if I watched this in 2017, would have been like, Dean? That fucking, <laughs> the dog guy with the tobacco in his mouth that he no longer has in his mouth? Like, okay, I guess. Yeah, right. That's right. weird. Really weird. Um, also, John has a beard, which, again, if this was a long gap, of time and I didn't hear him speak, I would not have recognized him. This actor looks so different with a beard to me. Yeah. And the glasses. It's the beard and glasses combo. Every time I see stuff like this, I remember that Clark Kent would have, I would have fallen for Clark Kent. (laughs) People are like, oh, you never would have known. Like, yeah, you put glasses on, you change your hair. I probably would be like, who, who's that? I mean, he's an incredible man. I would fall for him too. Yeah. Well, (laughs) Lois didn't. He had to make her fall in love because she's too cool for him. Um, all the nonsense about like yeah, Batman Peter. or no, uh, Super Peter. <laughs> That's what I heard you say. <laughs> Lois. Oh, a little Family Guy Superman action. Hey um, Peter. Hey Peter. Wow, Lois. I can do a better Peter. I can't do it right now. Um, <laughs> bring me back, centers, and the vibration Superman thing is nonsense. You could just change his hair a little bit and give him glasses, and I wouldn't know who he is. It's wild that they're doing this grift. Lori and John are dating now, presumably in a serious relationship. They're making out. They're doing the Isaac grift, but except they're explicitly grifting because Lori Googles the clients and feeds him info. Isn't that fucked? Yeah. But wouldn't you? It's been going on for years. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, but here's the thing about the three-year time skip. Uh, Uh, Late August 2019. Go ahead and just flash yourself back to where Take your head, where there, your life yeah. was at. Alan was unemployed, watching Babylon Five for chats. Uh, completely unsure where their life was going. Completely unsure of any factor of anything, uh, and had just been, you know, unceremoniously fired from a job they hated. Like I was a different human being. So, like, yeah, three years is a lot, but it's not that much at the same time. And I hope I'm making sense here, but like basically three years is just enough that people change in a major way, but not so much that you don't recognize them anymore. Mm. Like this is still something Lori would do. We know that Lori is like ethically dubious with certain things and Mm. everybody here has different um, beliefs about spirituality and magic and all that. So like, yeah, I, some people are going to run this grift again. It works. People come to Jarden. We might as well profit off the people who think Jarden is magic. It's fine. We've got, we've grown cynical. Well, yeah, it's they're shredding the money. Does that make a difference to you? Well, that is a federal crime. <laughs> so no, <laughs> two crimes on top of each other. No, I get it. They're shredding the money so that they don't feel like oh we're profiting. But then what? They're just doing it to be nice to make people happy. Give the money to someone. Give the money to charity. What's wrong with you? Why are you shredding uh-huh. the money? Uh huh. Because then you can be Robin Hood at least. I think they should just right. give simply give that money to someone. Redistribute that wealth. Yeah. But them literally buying a money shredder to just get rid of it is like, oh, we don't have to think about it if we get rid of it. It doesn't matter to us if we get rid of it. Like, no, guys, that's Uh real people's real money. As they say in this episode, or and they said that last season, you know, when when, uh, Lori was talking to Tom, it's like, you know, we're taking people's livelihoods. Just makes me wonder what they actually do for money. Also true. If they just spend all day running a grift where they shred the proceeds from it. Yeah, like is uh, is John still a firefighter in his free time? What's going on there? Does this town still pay him? We don't know much about that. Yeah. Um, 
in that same scene though where jill like moves out and we're like what's going on with lily we get a fun little like another catch up everyone's getting a dinner scene which i only mentioned because a bunch of the adult men characters are talking to tom this is a surprise thing for him because he's 25 now tom actually kind of looks 25 i don't know how old the actor is but i think they kind of got a 25 year old look um, yeah it feels like the right age for him. and i i just like the scene because matt talks about how when he was 25 him and mary went to guatemala he's like they don't say the g which ugh, matt ugh. Hmm. you're that he's the guy who goes to spain and he's like I, guys when i was on my vacation in espania and you're like i want to kill you <laughs> <laughs> he's that's matt jameson in a nutshell yeah um but yeah all the old old men are just like kind of Telling stories, we get Nora going to work, listen to Simon and Garfunky, and then we learn interesting about Kevin. Bud, hey Bud, what do you do when when Nora leaves? How do you feel about? <laughs> to my understanding, Justin Thoreau like opted to do this, to do this stunt, even though the creators were like, "You don't have to do it. We can get a stunt guy to do it." And he's like, "No, I would like to do it." Unhinged, Justin Thoreau, really right. unhinged. Like that, that's fully just him actually putting a bag on his head and asphyxiating for a bit i believe so yeah i don't know how you fake that and make the bag inflate and deflate with his breath like that i think you just have to stop you have to know when to stop right like then hold your breath and ask ask somebody to immediately poke a hole in it like cut and then poke a hole in it yikes so dangerous uh and if thoreau actually did that i don't understand it doesn't add any yeah justin Thoreau actually performed the plastic bag stunt causing director mimi leader and the crew to worry whether he was actually acting or suffocating but you don't have to do it jesus christ kevin's trying to feel something so he literally day after day instead of dropping his foot into like with the cinder block into the ocean now he or into the lake now he suffocates himself with a plastic bag and then stops right before he passes out but yeah i I think it's beyond like i want to feel something i think he wants to feel mortal yeah he wants to push right up against death like i think he's worried on some level that this stuff is true uh when's the first time we see him do it it's before he learns about the book right yeah it's this in order it's this scene it's after the party and then it's like oh nora's going to work she takes her bike to work and kevin this is when he does it the first time yeah, I think he's worried on some level that like he actually has come back from the dead a couple times for real. And he's trying to operate, live life as if that isn't true. And he's find he's finding some sort of reassurance in doing this like near suicide kind of thing that he keeps doing. And like Nora shot her got people to shoot her with a gun. So right. like I don't think that she can protest too, too much, but it is definitely a situation uh, that you would be worried about. If you found out your partner is doing this, you're like, mm-hmm. yeah, I know things are serious and I've done similar things, but that doesn't mean we should ignore this. So right. it's, it's kind of fascinating watching like Nora's career flourish as Kevin is like becoming not domestic, but just like anxious at home as a cop mm-hmm. who just like is falling, going through loops, pretending things are normal again, just like in season mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. Um, so I understand textually why he's doing it, but it's pretty severe. Um, so yeah, that brings us to the baptism scene. You want to talk about the baptism for a sec? Yeah, really interesting scene that gets at some of the new but old tensions of the world of the leftovers. So this is coming on the heels of Kevin doing a few things as the police chief in Jarden to try to like 
keep the peace that feels like that's his biggest priority so like with the guys at the beginning with the gary Busey thing he does a little judo move where he deputizes them rather than like getting into a back and forth with them um and then there's some stuff in the next episode where he tenora is like hey you know don't stir the pot basically i'm trying to make sure that things don't explode because when i think he's trying to not reiterate what happened in mapleton with regard to the uh the thing from the first episode and then of course the memorial day stuff and the burning of the guilty remnant compound um so he's trying to like dodge dodge those things and so we get to this scene at the lake where we see an array of factions here that is in some ways different um, because now the guilty remnant there's these like college protest type people um, who are like taking on the guilty remnant cause and are like oh the government fuck you but that's no longer like a religious thing the guilty remnant stuff has turned into i don't even know what you would call that like a kind of they like say the names of guilty remnant members almost like it's a black lives matter protest or something yeah that's what they're tapping into i would say that they've been martyrized you know they've been turned yeah. into like people who died for the cause yeah. by an unjust system but it absolutely the way the college students talk about them is like i mean none of us are guilty remnant but we right. say their names and we know their their story because we believe in them and it's like wait when they were alive, none of you liked them. What do you? What, what is this? The way that we reframe history. This yeah. like frustrated the hell out of me, intentionally, obviously. Yeah. But yeah, definitely. And it also kind of, I think, in an interesting way, that could become. You could either argue that it's muddling things, or that it's just like repackaging things in a way that's compelling. No longer is the guilty remnant cause one that is presented to us as like associated with religion, because now there's a literal like religious community here against this guilty remnant group that is being styled as a sort of social justice protest type of thing. Yeah. So it, you know, I think we talked in our previous episode about how the leftovers is like a show that thinks it's about religion, but it's not it really. Isn't. Yeah. yeah. Um, and this is, I think, once again, the leftovers being like, yeah, religion, like that's the thing. And it's kind of like, but, huh? <laughs> I don't know if I follow. And right. you're kind of shifting things around in a way that I think is intriguing, but I don't know if it's like clear necessarily. Um, yeah, all the imagery is there, right? You know, Michael giving Kevin the baptism and, and Kevin going into the water, like, they're doing all of the things that you say, like, this is a scene that's about, like, faith and how we, why we believe in things. And mm-hmm. so is the Book of Kevin stuff. But mm-hmm. it's, like, played in this way that's, like, well, this is how it would exist in real life, in the present. And I think all of that's intentional, you know, to be honest with you. But yeah. I do. But I also think it works better here than it did in seasons one and two, where it's, like, is the Guilty Remnant supposed to be a religion? Do you guys know what that means if you're saying that? Like, oh, it's, like... It, they they've gone better at at like blending the metaphor with the modern day, uh, yeah. and making it feel weird that people believe in these things so seriously. Because like mm-hmm. something I didn't even think about until I read the trivia is you know the scene progresses and people are worried because oh my god they put poison barrels in the water and uh, that's so awful because we were gonna use it for baptisms how evil and um, Kevin naturally jumps in like a normal person he's he's got pro skill at jumping into this lake 
uh, hmm. doesn't get hurt because they're all empty barrels. Did you notice that he's wearing a walkie-talkie? <laughs> the show just like doesn't. And I think it's kind of the point is that the sh- that Kevin doesn't care if he got electrocuted. For example, he's just like like this hmm. could have very well been poison when he jumped into it. But he's right. like, I don't know, fucking, I want to show people that it's not. And if it is, then like, oops, I'm a, uh, I guess I die as well. He's yeah. already pushing against that every day with the plastic bag. Um, but then where the scene progresses is that Michael is like, okay, great. So then you'll be the first baptism. So we can show everybody this is okay. And we get a, like a pretty realistic baptism scene, but I'm like, okay, what are you saying here? You know, what's the, the message is people have weird feelings about religion now and the guilty remnants tied up in that feels like it's not really coming to a head at the moment. Mm-hmm. But it's cool seeing Michael do the baptism and that actor like aged notably in three years and uh, it's a striking scene. But I think this is one of those scenes where I'm like, okay, leftovers, you can't just do stuff. You have to like mean something. Uh, you know? I really, I really like the exchange that Kevin and Michael have for, Michael's so happy to have baptized him, and Kevin's like, it didn't count. It didn't count. Yeah, <laughs> do good. you believe in Jesus? Yeah, sure, whatever. <laughs> like, <laughs> amazing. It's not a real one. It didn't stick. The sad thing is that Kevin also memorized the quote-unquote story of what happened three years ago, which is that there was a gas leak in the Guilty Remnant compound. He right. tells this to Tom. Tom's like, we don't think that happened, right? He's like, yeah, but that's quote-unquote what happened. Getting back mm-hmm. to that thing we talked about last season, which is like truth and narratives are subjective and communal. There's not like a there's not a one single truth, right? Um, and then some weird stuff happens real quickly just to get through this. Dean takes some pot shots at the cop car because Kevin doesn't believe in him, and then Tom fucking blasts Dean in the head with a pistol, and mm. now, and you're supposed to go wait, Tom. Why was that so easy for you? That what's going on there, Tom? <laughs> uh. Um, but Dean's dead. That's really violent for a first episode of your season, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, his head like exploded. It's not yeah. even like a. Uh, it was like, right, yeah. exactly. Uh, we just kind of move past that. There's not much to say about it other than like they they introduced Dean so that they could get rid of Dean and show us that Tom is like maybe getting a little bit callous and has like a different relationship with death and stuff. I don't know. Yeah, well, it's not the first time we've seen Tom explode people's heads because he... he had to shoot all those guys to get um christine out of the of the wayne oh compound. true oh my god <laughs> dude's playing call of duty he's got the skills yeah and so to him this is like another instance of him he's shaking someone. after he does it right and so mm-hmm. he's clearly traumatized and this is like a part of it yeah but kevin doesn't even understand the extent of it to really help tom and then kevin tries to relate to him and is like yeah i killed people too and he's talking about like his the you know purgatory world murders mm-hmm. uh and all that does is make tom be like what what <laughs> what yeah. are you talking about what do you mean yeah it's well said um and so quickly you're just more character stuff that all this stuff is really big like this is a dense freaking first episode i don't want to like yeah. skip any of these because they're all so important yeah. um Mary and her son, who we learn now is named Noah. It's wild seeing the actress for Mary just like walking around and acting. Uh, <laughs> yeah, she's like Matt doesn't believe that I'll live if I leave. If I leave uh, Jarden, I have to leave because I can't live my life trapped. And now it's a walled garden of sorts. I'm right. going to Mapleton. Matt doesn't want to let her leave, so she's basically gonna like sneak out. 
And then we learn about the title of the episode, The Book of Kevin, which, like, there are two moments that happen here where I go, you know what? Of course that's what's happening. Number one is The Book of Kevin, which is um, Matt Jameson le- knows about the whole international assassin thing because Michael told him. And now Matt is like, well, obviously you're a saint. And obviously we have, like, religious people write religious texts about saints. So mm-hmm. I'm writing a book about your life, which is so weird to think about. But like, if this was all true, then yeah, I would write it too. Like, mm-hmm. and my other moment of like, yeah, of course this is happening is in this whole exchange, you know, in the church, John comes through cause he's bringing food. And we learn that John also thinks that his daughter is alive. And he's like, yeah, she's yeah. probably going to come back at some point. Yeah, and it's like, oh no, this is like the way that faith can do you wrong, is you believe in things that we know are objectively not true now, and the show has never really tackled something like that. Because mm-hmm. the Eve thing was always, well, maybe she actually was departed. Well, maybe she's actually dead. Maybe she's just hiding, and to have that revealed, and then now his faith is so shaken that he's like, you know what, my new faith is that she was, she's just hiding, or she's you know, temporarily gone. And it's like, no, John, we watched her get blown up. That's not John. I felt so bad here. I almost wanted to cry. Like, come on. This guy's never going to catch a break. He lost his wife. Uh, He's running this grift in a town. That's like half what it used to be. His kids are gone. It's just, John's having a really bad time. I want to, I want to follow up with John a lot more in the rest of the season. I hope they keep up with him, but yeah, that stuff's all really sad. And then final scene. Here we go. You're like, okay, there's four minutes left in the episode. What's going on? We did all the plots. Like, John's worried. Kevin's, like, mad about the book. That's weird. Anyways, uh, in the middle of nowhere, a woman uh, takes a bunch of doves, doves out of her little coop and gives them to another woman. And she says her name is Sarah. And then the woman who takes the doves says, do you know somebody named Kevin? And uh, we pan over and we realize that that is Carrie Coon somehow going by sarah for some reason but she looks way older yeah this is some lost season four shit my guy how did you feel (laughs) is this this is where this is where when you i saw your notes i was like magellan had to spoil this for himself he has to know what this is there's uh, there's like a a vague thing that i spoiled that is i guess related to what's going on here but Okay. I I don't know. So I'm just going to speak broadly about how one could interpret this. Yeah, let's do our best cuz I also know what this is and I thought that and I would love for people listening to this to know to be like what just I want to hear people's predictions, you know. Yeah, I mean it's it's Carrie Coon older, so I think the like surface level thing that you could take from this is okay, that's Nora. Nora is much older. Um, she, for some reason, is living under an assumed alias. And uh, somehow this far in the future, Kevin has become some kind of uh, figure with the grandeur that we would expect someone who has like a religious text written about him to have. Yeah. That's like how I am reading this scene. And I think that's all in the text of the scene. I think... You know, we could also have some more far out interpretations. Maybe this is a descendant of theirs. And that's why she's going by Sarah, because it's not actually Nora. It's Nora's daughter or something like that. 
um, or who knows what. Um, right. But that seems to be the face value thing seems to be like something haven't happened with this Kevin stuff. He's become very well known. It's far in the future. Mm-hmm. Nora's in like who knows where she is, the UK or something or Australia, maybe. Possibly. Um, and uh, she's like on the on the lamb or in hiding or who knows something like that mm-hmm why yeah, it's, i don't know uh, right exactly i'm so curious where this goes i am personally a big sucker for this like in the final scene something completely different happens and you're like wait what the fuck and then we don't talk about it for like several episodes um i wish i didn't know what this was is what i'll say that's why i also asked you like do you know because i would be so thrilled to find out what's going on here so do your best folks at home who don't be like us. Don't, don't read things. It's cool. Um, but we'll dive more into to Lorna, into Nora talk, uh, in the second episode. But first, my John, did you have any straight notes on this one that we didn't talk about? Uh, I do. Let me skim my notes here. Uh, did Kevin seem like he had a slight Texas accent at the beginning? Him and Matt did. I, I think that's that. just, I think that Christopher Eccleston's is just like slipping because he's also doing British, doing American. But yeah. I, de- I, I heard it in Kevin's too. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, it happens. Three years, you start to pick up on little bits. Yeah. I wonder if that was intentional or what. Yeah. I don't know. Um, Kevin asked Michael when he walks in if he was watching porn on his computer, and Michael just doesn't. He's just like, ha. Ah. Uh, that's funny. He's probably writing the book of Kevin or something. I don't know. Or quote really unquote writing the book of Kevin. Right. <laughs> uh let's see. Da, 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 da. <laughs> this is when Dean is telling Kevin, like, this is how the dog people win. He says, This is how they get their finger on the button. And Kevin goes, Paw. Paw. Yeah. <laughs> and Dean's Paw like, on the button. Dean's like, What? <laughs> and then I like the delivery, the guy playing Dean says the line you don't believe me but he says you don't believe me like right. even kevin doesn't believe him i just thought right. that was a good smart delivery yeah because there's that scene when somebody tells kevin like hey there's a guy in here and they have like three different words for uh it's a weird guy who has mm-hmm. some sort of theory like they already they've dealt with so many types of deans before that nowadays it's just like yeah you got another guy who came to jordan and said he has a grand theory great okay hmm um you got any one any other ones the most season three energy moment for me is the moment where john comes into the room where laurie is they both look at each other make eye contact say pat benatar at the same time and laugh and then he says let's party (laughs) when they kiss like that's like i'm waking up in a fever dream i don't know what alternate reality i feel like it's supposed to feel like that though that you're just like what What yeah 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 i felt that 100 percent uh nora says what were you guys talking about on the porch your penises penises then they you know some they do some some dirty talk some dirty touch so yeah that's right penises on the mind i guess Mm -hmm. um that's that's it that's all i got that's all I got. There were a lot of mysteries in this one. There were actually some of them were even answered in the second episode, like what happened to Lily and where's Erica. So 
uh, stay tuned for those. But those were the main notes that we had. The Book of Kevin, a fascinating first episode of the season. Let's take a brief musical break, though, and we will be back to discuss the fascinating, the riveting episode two. Don't be ridiculous! Right after this. Welcome back to the Chats Overs. The second episode we watched this week was season three, episode two of The Leftovers, entitled Don't Be Ridiculous. It was written by Damon Lindelof and directed by Keith Gordon. It aired on April 23rd, 2017. Alan, what happened in Don't Be Ridiculous? It's very simple, Majan, actually. Nora in this episode travels to St. Louis in her role as the investigator for the Department of Sudden Departure. That, my friends, is called Burying the Lead. Uh, this season buries the lead. This episode buries the lead. The lead is just deep underground. Um, even in its title, and then its title sequence. Let's break it down minute by minute here, just at the top. Don't be ridiculous is the catchphrase of one of the main characters on Perfect Strangers. That's why I'm saying it like that. Don't be ridiculous! Oh. He says it like that. I can't remember Cut if it's it. Mark's character or the other guy. Got it. Okay. Number two. The theme song of this episode is the Perfect Strangers theme song. Standing tall. Oh! Number three, the writer and director credits uh, in this episode are generated by the Wu-Tang name generator, the Lonely Donkey Kong, and Specialist Contagious. <laughs> Which you're like, that's weird. That's kind of random. And then you realize because later, because Nora got the Wu-Tang tattoo to cover up her children's names. Oh, my God. That's so good. That's so good. I didn't even notice that. Yeah. That's yeah. It was. Uh, I was like, wait, what the? Who are these writers? That's weird. Yeah, because we don't usually look at credits. It's kind of like a little Easter egg. Um, don't be ridiculous. Yeah, this is the episode I wanted. This is like we're we're heading face first into Australia nonsense. Let's introduce a wild sci-fi premise in the midnight hour. Um, and Nora's totally game for it. I adored this. This is in my like top favorite episode so far. I think. Mm. How'd you feel? Yeah, I think I um I watched this one kind of half of it kind of late at night and half of it really early in the morning. So I don't think I gave the episode its due entirely, but there were some, you know, some things here that I think continue what I was saying in the first half of just like no other show does. No other this. show. No other show. I mean, the Mark Lynn Baker stuff alone is like some of the best stuff ever and no, to make it a real no character to not yeah it to not yeah. make it a gag and to be like oh marklin baker he's like hey more i'm gonna also grift you but to like fill that character with pathos and meaning and allow mark to actually act his heart out in that like right. five minute sequence is a testament to how earnest the leftovers can be sometimes you know, it gets criticized for being kind of hipstery and up its own butt a little. And like, yeah, referencing a, a one-off gag you made in season one into making it into a real character is a mm -hmm. little silly and a little self-indulgent. But at least they do something with it. And they don't right. just go like, oh, Mark's here. That's weird. Like, 
I can't even imagine what the conversation with Mark was like. Mark Lynn Baker was like when they asked him to be on the show, where they're like, "Hey, so you're in the you were in the show like five years ago, four years ago, as a funny little cameo as yourself. We need you to come back and play an essential role in the plot, actually." <laughs> and you're playing yourself, but you're playing a fi- kind of fictionalized, but not really fictionalized version. Right. Want to do it? <laughs> He's right. like, I don't know what he's doing these days. Actually, these days, as in 2022, Marklin Baker has a starring role as She-Hulk's dad in the Marvel, the Disney Plus series She-Hulk, which is pretty dope. Incredible, incredible. I was like, I watched that, and I was like, wait, is that is that Mark? Is that my boy? Um, hmm. I don't know what's up with Bronson Pinchot or why they were would would or would not use him in this, but they made the right choice getting him getting uh, Mark in here. But let's talk about Nora for a bit. Let's let's go through I, this. Yeah, this one other thing about the Marklin Baker monologue. It's just it's great that somebody actually did a little research on Mark Lynn Baker because there's a moment where he's talking about how the people being roped into like the thing that he's involved in are actually smart and he's like, I have two degrees from Yale. He does. He does. It's that's actually true. He has a BA and he got an MFA at the Yale School of Drama. That's the best thing ever. They did the research. Yeah. I'm so happy. Yeah. Honestly, it would have been dumb to me then, yeah, if they like fully fit. Because someone I think was pointing out, or, or a friend of the podcast, Nick, was like, why didn't they put him on the ca- the credits as Marklin Baker as himself? And I think the reason is Marklin Baker is playing quote unquote Marklin Baker. He's not playing the real person. He's playing like, what right. if Marklin Baker existed as he is, but in the world of the leftovers right. with the trauma of that? I guess actually, right. no, the reason they don't have Ron Smith is because he would have been departed. That's why that, that happened. Yeah. But I'm just, you know, anyways. Um, let's get to the Mark scene. Why are we why before we're talking to Mark in his actual hometown of St. Louis, by the way? <laughs> uh, okay. Oh my god, best good, good, good. So while we're still in Jarden, um, you guys remember that tower man, the guy who sits in the tower all day? What if he had a tragic backstory? And also what if he randomly one day fell off of the tower? This is how the episode opens. Is tower guys just standing there at night, leans over, falls over, dies. Had a heart attack. Wow. Brutal. Makes sense though. You'd stay up there all day for years and years and years. Because eventually your heart's like, I don't I need movement. I need like actual sustenance. And uh the show like zooms in on the uh, like how can we empathize with that character by introducing us to his wife, who is, if I'm not mistaken, the Christian woman who Matt spoke to last season and she told him to like hit the guy with the paddle. I believe this mm. is her. I thought I recognized her. That makes sense. Almost positive that that's who that is. Yeah, I so believe that. She claims that she saw her, her husband depart. We know that he didn't because we just saw it happen. Another example of somebody in the show is certain that there's magic and we, the viewer, know it's not. So we're distanced mm-hmm. from them. Um, and we kind of understand that Matt might be covering for the wife uh, mm-hmm. and like telling other people, like, yeah, he definitely departed. And they're like, Matt, we don't believe that. That doesn't make any sense. Uh where would the body have been, et cetera, et cetera? Why did this part of the tower break doesn't add up at all? Um, but then we actually do zoom into uh, the Nora plot and why Nora mm-hmm. is where she is. So things get weird. Um, first of all, she cuts off her cast, which we will learn shortly why she got it. Uh, she meets, she gets a phone call. From Marklin Baker's people, right? And they're like, hey, if you want to, mm-hmm. Mark wants to talk to you um, about some important stuff, you need to go to St. Louis as part of this for your work. 
Um, she also talks to George to brevity. We got to see George brevity again, which made me awesome. very very happy. Awesome. I missed him, and he's authorizing her travel, and I'm just glad he's still in the show. Um, she kind of says goodbye to Kevin, and then Kevin, you know, later when she decides like she's gonna go to Australia, she talks to him again. She's like, "Do you want to come with me?" And he's like, "Can I go, please?" <laughs> he's like, kind of become her puppy dog, little boyfriend. I like I like how their their relationship has kind of how where it's mm-hmm. turned, where she's like, "I'm trying to help you." And also, mm-hmm. let me go live my life. Um, just a couple of really great Nora things back to back to back. On the plane ride there, she sees the kiosk. She has a lot of trouble with kiosks and touchscreens this episode. Um, yep. The kiosk asks her if she's traveling with an infant, and she can't say no. The only button she can hit is yes. And the woman mm-hmm. the who's helping her is like, well, just hit yes. Just say you are, even if you're not. It doesn't matter. You'll get it. You'll have the extra seat. Which starts making us go, well, okay, what happened to Lily? They never said. Like right. what actually happened to Lily? And right, Lily- it's something that Jill brought up in the previous episode. Like, are you talking to her about this? It's a big question mark going into this one. Yeah, exactly. But before um, we find out what happens to Lily, she meets the man himself in the hotel in St. Louis. Mark makes her swear to secrecy, throw her phone in the toilet, which bummed me out. I was like, I hate it when people throw the fucking phone in the toilet. <laughs> That's expensive. Uh. I, I wrote in my notes, I didn't want to hear actor Mark Lynn Baker say the quote, everything that matters is up there in the cloud. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's just hardware. sitcom store. Yeah. It's sitcom star, really. Yeah. And also, really on the nose, everything that matters is up there in the cloud, like in heaven. Mm, sure. I don't know if that day was intentional, but I found that weird. And we get a lore dump. We get like a science dump, literally like a fucking sci-fi ass dump. The LADR. There's, long story short... There's energy around all of the departures. They believe the the group that he works with or or is recruiting for believes that they can force a departure and that they've been able to isolate that energy into a machine that allows mm-hmm. you to tell to basically get rid of your body yeah, whatever, where it is. Whatever happened to the people who departed would happen to you. By choice. That they could make that they could press a button yeah. and do it to you. Yeah. Wild if true. My mind was opening wide here. And, yeah. you know, you are you are in this moment, Nora, being like, what, dude? No, shut up. You're killing people. You're disintegrating real human beings, and that's really awful. And, mm-hmm. you know, why are you... Are, are you're clearly... She tells him, just like Lori told Kevin, like, you're not well. Uh, Mark, I think you're maybe just suicidal. Mm-hmm. And he says the incredible, incredible line, I'm not suicidal. I want to take some fucking control. Which... Yeah. Like Marklin Baker making me Alan tear up at like a th- on Thursday afternoon <laughs> watching this. Come on, dude. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, that's what Nora wants. That's what we all want, and that's what Kevin wants. So he does the thing with the bag. You just want to do the thing that you control, that you made the choice to do. Whether it's to see your family again, or in Mark's case, to like see the actors that matter to you, the people in your like communal family, mm-hmm. to d- have chosen to do that, and. Yeah, you know he just again the scene is incredible. The performance is so good, and uh, ML MLB as I call him in my notes, MLB hands her a USB stick with videos of all the people who consented to it. Um, this is a a really interesting part. Um, they play some like beautiful choral music, and it's different people being like, "My name is blah blah blah, and I am of a sound mind and heart, and I chose to go through the machine because you know legal reasons," mm-hmm. and like. Okay, here's what I think about this, just so we can get through it, like, in our way. Yeah. If this is working, then 
no one's ever going to believe them. There's nothing anybody could say. There's to no make way to prove it. it. Right. That's the beautiful tragedy of this machine, of this device, is like, it's whatever you want. Otherwise, this is a, a freaking group of scientists who are like doing assisted suicide. Right. That's what it also is. And right. Because at, at a certain believe... point, it requires the same sort of faith as believing in like heaven or something. Right. Or believing in John Miller or whatever, or the, the Millerites, yeah. you know? It's it's like, yep, I'm going to give up everything for this. Yeah. Nora like in some ways, it's to... the equivalent of, of me being like, we notice that, you know, when we accelerate a ball of lead really quickly through someone's skull, it has the effect of, like, killing them. <laughs> so I have this Test gun. <laughs> Here, do you want to pay me a bunch, $20,000 to shoot you in the head and send you to the afterlife or whatever? Um, and I like guarantee you you'll go to the afterlife. Right. Yeah. Like, would you do... <sighs> And I, I can't even ask you, Magellan, like, would you do it? I kind of wanted to, like, ask my parents about this, maybe. Like, if you're Nora. Because we learn a lot about Nora's, like, interiority right now as of season three. Yeah. But and you're someone who... I, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I have a thought on it, but I want to hear the rest of this thought. If you're Nora and you lost your entire family, and you but you found a new family, you know that there's potential to start over. Yeah. Well, why isn't there a chance? Why isn't there also potential to just undo to just start do it correctly, be with the family that's your nuclear family, mm-hmm. and live with them exactly as they were. Why not undo the departure? Take some fucking control. I fully get it. Yeah. Why Nora would do this? It's sad, and it feels like people are on their last rope consenting to this. You watch those, um, those to those videos, and it feels like these are people consenting to euthanasia or something. But uh-huh. it also could just be people making a choice, making a decision. Yeah. What are you gonna say? Um, yeah, I think this episode, it, uh, the place that Nora's at here is really an interesting one and a tragic one because knowing that she's back with the the Department of Sudden Departures and knowing that she's back in the division that's, uh, the False Claims Division tells us through her job that in some ways Nora, as a character, has experienced a setback or a reversion of her arc or something like that. Because, you know, I think there's something about like being in the false claims division that is that thread of season one Nora of like, like, fuck you, you don't get to move on from this or you don't get to have this or you don't get to lie about this or whatever. It's, mm-hmm. it's this almost like a uh, kind of, angry vindictive part of her maybe self-hating to a certain extent i don't know um and she's like back there uh, as opposed to being back in the version of herself at the dsd where she was working with the like family uh whatever that was called where they get like the the money the 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 yeah whatever that is where her role there was kind of more about consoling people, maybe about the sort of hopefulness of like, maybe they'll come back. And, uh, you know, it seems like losing, it seems like losing Lily has re-traumatized Nora to a certain extent um, and brought her back to how she first felt when her family departed. Um, So we're seeing 
a stage of Nora's development that we didn't really see because we met her after that in season one. Um, and she's kind of reliving it here. And I think what's intriguing about the Mark Lynn Baker stuff is Nora is so well versed in the like scammy ways that people talk about the sudden departure right. that like what possible cult or what possible religious interpretation could sway her none except for something like this that is couched in scientific reasoning that uh where the people who are looking into it seem like pretty thoughtful about it uh this is the sort of thing that i think nora as someone who like wants to stay detached from things intellectually would be intrigued by this and and consider it and so it's mm -hmm. interesting to see you know everybody has the thing that is gonna tip them over the edge or get them to follow some person on the phone to australia with twenty thousand dollars in hand right and this just happens to be the thing that's going to get nora there it it really it's so challenging you know like and i don't i i commend carrie coon for being able to do this performance and for marklin baker to be a kind of parallel to that guy from season two remember the like guy with the long hair who was that came up to her house and was like i think that there's energy here like functionally mark is saying the same thing that that guy was it's just that, as I said last season in our discussion, Mark actually has time to like explain to her what's going on and why it, it he thinks it works. Right. Whereas that guy was like, ah, we have reason to believe that it works. Now that years have gone by and they have celebrity people able to vouch for them, yeah, mm -hmm. now it's actually much more appealing, that same pitch of like, what if you could just go see them? Wouldn't you like to do that? Wouldn't, if that worked as easily as like jumping into a machine and pressing go, why wouldn't mm -hmm. you do it? Yeah, now we know the answer partly is because, one, we don't know if it works, and two, you're giving up a lot. By by electing to go into the machine, Nora's also saying, I'm saying goodbye to the life I have here. So right. for her to consent to that is actually also, in a sad way, to consent to dying. To say, right. well, there's another life for me. It's not this one. So I'm letting this this life die. And that's where this is so hard. And why the rest of this episode is like, um, almost like a Thelma and Louise, like just to Nora being like, well, okay, well, nothing really matters because I'm probably mm -hmm. just either going to die or disappear after this. So let me just kind of go on a like character based rampage of sorts. Uh, yeah. And I love it. I love the characterfulness of it. Um, mm -hmm. But let's get into that. So, you know, I mentioned that she cut her cast off. And uh, before we meet Erica and learn about the cast and what was under it, uh, she goes to Kentucky um, I believe it was Eminence, Kentucky, and that's where the airport thing happens. Uh, and she goes to some playgrounds. By the way, when she's driving to these the playground, they play an instrumental version of the Perfect Strangers theme, which made me laugh mm -hmm. out loud. That was comedy. Yeah. That's very, very good. Um, this time she gets out of the car instead of just watching the kid steal another girl's shovel, and it gives the girl the shovel back. And you're like, you have the moment she has. You're like, that vaguely looks like Lily, but maybe I'm ignorant. Maybe that's not Lily. And then who the fuck comes up behind her but Christine from <laughs> season one who lives in Kentucky now and it's like, the, that's the actress? What? Extremely did not expect to see Christine again. Re that, like, I fully didn't know this, this reveal. Yeah. And 
I gasped. I was like, what? Huh? <laughs> Who? Hmm. And she's like, Nora, did you want to talk? Did you want to, like, what's going on? That's It's Lily, right? And then Nora just has to leave because, like, you know, I can't be in this right now. This isn't my family anymore. So right, I, It looks like under- she's here to kidnap her or something. Right. She had the thought, but now that she saw the mother again, she's like, oh, it's not going to work. I'm not going to do yeah, it. Yeah, I don't think she intended to kidnap Lily, but I think Christine is interpreting it that way. Yeah, like, why are you, what are you doing with Lily? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just really fascinating. And, like, Nora continues to roll snake eyes on every one of her luck rolls in this this little adventure mm-hmm. of hers. Because mm-hmm. she doesn't get Lily back. We learn that, that so Lily's now with Christine, which is, makes sense, mm-hmm. you know, you, she got to be with her biological mom. I love this scene with the parking gate so, so much. I can't believe somebody wrote this on a page and made it filmed it. It's hilarious. Mm-hmm. Everyone has wanted to do this when you try to put the ticket in the parking gate and it won't go up and it won't eat the ticket. <laughs> and she, she fucking she gets lifts out the and gate by hand. It. It's incredible. Queen icon. And I'm thinking to myself, like, is the rest of this part until she goes to Australia just going to be Nora Dress commits crimes because she knows that she's probably going to die at the end of it? So my, I might as well... Hmm. Just say, like, fuck all the rules. I'm breaking gates. I don't care. Um, Mm -hmm. But first she takes a stop and visits. uh, We we kind of recreate Lens. And she visits Erica, uh, who's Mm -hmm. living on her own. I think on her own now. I said, I screamed. I said, let's go. (laughs) When I I was very excited to see Erica. I wasn't expecting to see her. Not in the slightest. Nope. Yeah. We learned some really serious stuff, though, about Erica, who's left and is seeming to get her life back together outside mm-hmm. of the her family. Nora reveals that she broke her arm. We understand from various sources in this episode that what she did was she closed the car door on it because she wanted a cast to cover the scars of her Wu-Tang Clan tattoo. Mm-hmm. Wu-Tang forever, baby. Wu-Tang forever. Yeah, I was a little confused about this because... So tell me if I understand this correctly. She was getting... Did she already have the tattoos of her kids' names or yeah. she was getting those tattoos? She had the tattoo of her kids' names before, well before the departure. She had that for years. Got she it. recent, fairly in the three years, got the Wu-Tang tattoo to cover it up. She said, give me whatever you want. That one looks like angel wings or something or phoenix wings. Uh-huh. Just cover it up with that. But then she felt so embarrassed because now instead of people, because she says, like, I don't want people to come up to me and be like, oh, those are your kids. Oh, how old are they? And she's like, has to explain it every time. That's really uh-huh. traumatizing. She's like, instead, what I got was people going, oh, you're into Wu-Tang Clan. What's your favorite song? And she's like, I can't do that either. So uh-huh. she got a cast so that she wouldn't have to explain her tattoo. Hmm. It's fucking dark. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That That's how I understood this whole thing, at least. And, uh, that makes sense. They have this this very potent moment, though, because she didn't get to bury her kids. She says uh, to Erica, how are you not going crazy after Evie? To which she says, well, Evie died and I got to bury her. I mm-hmm. bought a trampoline. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, wait. The, the swing there is incredible. Yeah. I, you know, I got to move on. I got to jump and, and live like a kid again. Yeah. And yeah, so Nora and Erica proceed to jump on a trampoline to protect your neck. The jump off. Is the name of the song. Protect your neck. Great Coke, choice. The Great jump off. I mean, did you ever think you were going to see Regina King and Carrie Coon just like jumping on a trampoline to Wu-Tang Clan? No. Just Another fucking... moment of just like, hey, it's season three. <laughs> we're never going to get to write this show again. 
this is such a beautifully shot scene. They're both like barefoot yeah. and just like they look like kids. They're they're both like they're very beautiful yeah. people. Also, I'm just saying that. And like it's just great. I was like, this is this is awesome. We're like. Something the leftovers does that is not appreciated enough is that it respects the little moments in life that that provide you joy, and it, mm-hmm. it depicts them like, oh, this is great. This is like a small weird thing that you do with your friend when you visit her, and you go, oh, that was so wonderful. I'm never gonna forget that. Yeah, really, really good stuff here. I love to see it. <sighs> yeah, definitely the highlight I think of the episode besides seeing my boy Mark. Um, and then <laughs> we kind of come back. Christine calls Tom so that he knew that Nora was gone. He calls his uh, calls Nora and he's like, "Hey, what's going on?" Um, we get some like Tom and Nora talking to each other, which I didn't expect when she gets back home, which is kind of cool. Not too mm-hmm. nothing too too much. No nothing worth talking about there. But I just like seeing them talk to each other. And then Nora continuing to go sickle mode, plops a gigantic photo of the tower man's dead body on the tower, which is mm-hmm. so offensive. And the 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 wife is like, "You're going to hell. You're an evil person." Mm-hmm. And she's like, "Cool, I know I am." <laughs> Basically, um, she catches Kevin doing the bag thing. Uh, she says uh, the funny thing of like, "I want to have a baby with you." Uh, they're trying to like understand their happiness with each other. It's a weird scene. I feel complicated about this whole thing. We are both people who want to die, but also, what if we chose life instead? What if we traveled together? Right. Right. I mean, I I think. It's interesting. It's an interesting scene because Kevin says, "Well, do you want to have a baby?" Because that's his way of being like, "Well, she's probably sad about Lily. Maybe I should say something." Uh-huh. And you know, him sort of like clinging for connection there. And it's clear that Nora, like the the thing that has caused her to kind of lose a sense of anchoring to her life, is Lily being gone. And yet their problems aren't going to be fixed by just like having a baby. Um, But then for her response to him to be like, hey, you're happy, right? Me too. We're both super happy right now. (laughs) It's like, are you? I'm on the road to maybe die and Kevin tries to die every single day. We're definitely happy. We're super happy right now. Let's not mess it up with a kid. I'm way too happy. (laughs) I don't know about that, Nora. I don't know. I love the way she's like, are you happy? And Kevin's like, "Uh, Uh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He's got like the bag next to him. (laughs) Right. Did you notice that this – because she introduces like, hey, I'm. by the way, I'm going to Australia. Do you want to come with me? No, this he is, says, well, can I come oh, with Oh, can you? I come with you? Yes, 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 yes. Correct. So and she's cute. like, yeah, fuck yeah. Very cute. Big puppy dog energy. This uh-huh. is them finally making good on the Miami trip where she was like, do you want to just go – like uh-huh. say fuck it and go to Miami? Instead, they're going to Australia. Yeah. I also what? like that she reminded him in episode one of when they actually met for the first time. Because he misremembered and thought it was at divorce court, but it was actually at the town thing. I love that because, again, it's like, oh, we knew that. We saw them meet. This is great. Right, right. Um, But, yeah, he's going to go with to uh, he's going to go to Australia with her. We don't know who else is coming at this point. If it's just going to be a Nora and Kevin trip, if we're going to lug Matt in there. I doubt we can lug Matt and Mary because they don't want to be together anymore. Tom could come or could not. John should come. Lori should come. 
trying to make my ultimate D&D party for Australia, and I can't really decide who I, who is and is not <laughs> right. going to come. Right. But we'll see. We'll see who ends up joining them for the, the Australia journey. And then the show says, hold on, let's play a didgeridoo. Because <laughs> you know it's Australia when there's didgeridoo. Yeah. I mean, we have Australian listeners that can let us know if this is as... <laughs> inappropriate as i think it is it's just corny you can do other yeah. and the guy runs into a kangaroo like that's how they start the australia scenes is let's mm-hmm. play a didgeridoo and have a cop hit a kangaroo and kill it like fucking what all right so dumb uh they did actually film the stuff in australia i will give them credit they went to australia and shot on location hmm. for all this stuff in australia this season he shoots the the kangaroo to just make it not suffer he seems like a shitty guy. Uh, we learn that his name is... Is his name Kevin Garvey? His name's is Kevin. He... I don't know if it's Kevin Garvey. Okay. But his he's a police Kevin. chief named Kevin. Gotcha. I think the actor's last name is Garvey, and that was a funny coincidence. Huh. <laughs> um, and I was like, oh, who's going to like come to visit him after he like is mean to the guy in his, his, house, in his uh, precinct? He goes home. Someone's here to visit. And I was like, okay, what character is it going to be? It's going to probably be like, like Kevin Senior, right? And mm-hmm. it's it's four mysterious women on ho- Australian old women on horses. Mm-hmm. And they are looking for Kevin. Uh, it's the four horsemen of the apocalypse, you guys. Did you get it? Did you realize that when you were watching or am I clever? I can't tell. No, I didn't um, realize that. Okay. They keep talking about the apocalypse is coming. What comes before the apocalypse? Before people on horses. Wow. Okay. Um, Yeah. And they basically are like, if you're Kevin, then we need to kill you because we need to see that you can come back to life. And he's like, no, what? I'm not Kevin. I'm I mean, I'm Kevin, but I'm not the Kevin. What? what huh? um, presumably yeah, so they've like seems... read the book of Kevin. Oh, you think it's that? I thought. How they... would they know about the martyr? I thought it was like Kevin Senior has the same reputation. Or well, no, because they see Kevin Senior at the end. They like they they see him. I thought right. Yeah. Well, they they don't know. They know they're looking for a Kevin who can come back to life, mm-hmm. and they don't know what he looks like. Uh, okay. So I was assuming they were looking for Kevin Senior, but you might be right that the story of Kevin Junior has reached Australia. And people are just all out there looking for Kevins. We're hunting for Kevins. Yeah. I would at least look for Kevin Garvey's. And I thought that the irony here would be like, oh, my God, his name is Kevin Garvey, but he's not the and, – and he's a cop, but he's mm-hmm. not the Kevin Garvey cop that we're looking for. Um, so they uh, drown this guy, uh, and he dies. And they're like, well, that's awkward. I don't, the, girl's, the woman's name is Grace. She's like, I don't think that was actually him. Oh, that's my bad. We just killed someone, and then Kevin Sr. pops out, and bam, Kevin Sr.'s in the show. I wasn't surprised. I was like, if you're going to show Australia, you're going to show Kevin Sr. I'm glad to see Scott Glenn, but, like, thanks. <laughs> hmm. You know what did surprise me, Majel, about this last couple things here? We get a brief news report about, like, how Australia handles, handles the sudden departure. Um, two things uh. I noticed. Number one, the newscaster they used is actually a newscaster in Australia. Kind of nice. fun. Love that. Number two... The departure celebration day in Australia is October 15th because of time zones. Good attention to detail. Very good attention to detail. I feel like if you're going to do an entire season's plot about Australia, you have to acknowledge the time zone difference. But yes. you don't think about that. Like, yeah, if they're going to do a date that they celebrate, it's going to be a whole day later. So right. 
Uh, we're going to Australia. I just want, oh, I want a travel montage. I want to know what they're going to do in Australia. I want to know what the machine looks like. I have so many questions, so much juice. We're being fed well, but I want more. So, it's yeah. Do you have any stray notes on don't be ridiculous? Ridiculous. Um, yeah, let me take a look at my notes. I have an incredibly strong urge to spoil the rest of the season for myself, which I'm resisting with every fiber of my being. I can feed you tra- like little nuggets if you want. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Right no, now? Not, or? No, 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 off air. Oh, what? <laughs> okay. okay. They can't have anything. Got it. Um, I like that the pillar guy's wife, when she sees Nora again... She says, if you don't mind, I'm just going to sit here and smoke my coping mechanism. Because of what Nora, <laughs> Nora said about her husband coping yep. on the pillar. Pretty okay. good pretty good line. Um, George Brevity calls the fact that everybody thinks something's going to happen on the seven-year anniversary the seven-year itch. itch He's yeah. like, yeah, we got that seven-year itch going on. Is that a reference to something? Um, well, there's that movie... Oh, the, the Marilyn Monroe age. movie, but oh. I don't know what the phrase is. That's like a phrase, I think. Yeah. Okay. Well, he's probably referencing the movie. Uh yeah, but I'm not. Oh, it's it... based on a it's based on a play. Okay. Oh, okay. Um. Anyway, I thought that was a. Funny oh, the phrase is used by psychologists referring to waning interest in a monogamous relationship after seven years of marriage, and the the term comes from the movie. That makes sense. Okay. Groovy. Got it um yeah that that's that's pretty much what i got it's a fun episode it goes by really fast i what i'm loving about this season so far is every episode i'm like yes that was so good wait i want way more of it though oh no why is it over like i I keep feeling that um Mm -hmm. and i want more of it again so thankfully we don't have to wait another month or whatever to record our next episode because we'll be back next week with uh season three episodes three and four of the leftovers. You want me to tell you what happens in them, Magellan? Please do. First up is season three, episode three, crazy white fella thinking. <laughs> it's actually white fellas. One word. That's great. With the clock ticking towards the anniversary of the departure and emboldened by a vision that is either divine prophecy or utter insanity. All right. That's not great. Kevin Garvey senior wanders the outback in an effort to save the world. That's <laughs> awesome. Mm-hmm. What? Sure, I can't wait not? for a Kevin Garvey Senior focused episode. That's gonna Dang, be really me good. Me too. That's yeah, super good. Yeah. And then season three, episode four. Good day, Melbourne. Good day, Melbourne, for the Americans out there. Uh, uh-huh. Kevin and Nora travel to Australia. Do a tone on the wall. Da 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 They travel to Australia, where Nora continues to track down the masterminds of this elaborate con, while he wait. Oh, Kevin and Nora travel to Australia where she continues to track down the masterminds while he catches a glimpse of an unexpected face from the past, forcing wow. him to confront the traumatic events of three years earlier. Is it Dean? Wait, that would three years earlier. So we're at the end of season two. Face from the past. Who do we think that is? Patty? No. Probably. Well, yeah, maybe. He did mention Patty in the first episode, how he killed a woman. Did Meg escape? Oh, I don't want to look this up. Okay. We have more stuff coming next week. I'm excited about it. Let's take it to the plug zone. Yeah. Yeah. Magellan, where can people find you on the podcast here? 
They can find me on another podcast, Super Smash Echoes. It's a video game book club podcast I do with my friend Justin, where we play games related to the Super Smash Brothers franchise. And our next episode coming soon is on F-Zero GX, the GameCube game, which has been very fun to play. So check us out, Super Smash Echoes. Alan, what about you? I'm also on the Huntress Quorum, a Monster Hunter rate and review and discussion podcast. We talk about all the monsters of Monster Hunter, the video game franchise, and whether or not they're all friends. We just are putting on an episode, hopefully uh, before this one comes out, of the Chatsowers, um, talking about more monsters from MH World. And we're going to be moving into Rise eventually, and then we'll be taking a break, and then new Pokemon will come out, and it'll become a Pokemon podcast again. If you want to hear my solo work, I am a co-host and primary producer on AMA Boston's Talking Marketing Podcast. Uh, For those unaware, every other month we put out an episode where I I or one of my um, co-VPs interview a marketing person and ask them about their crafts, what they're into, why they do what they do, and how to become the how to get the job that they have. And uh, we just put out an episode with Sherry Langbert, the CEO of a really interesting company called Babblebox. Um, and I had a really great discussion with Sherry, so you should check that out. Talking marketing wherever you listen to podcasts. Magellan, can you do the plug zone this episode, please? Surely I can. You can get in touch with the show in a few different ways. You can email us at chancepod at gmail.com with any questions, comments, concerns, suggestions, whatever you want to share with us there. You can also follow us on Twitter, twitter.com slash chatspod. You can join a community of fellow listeners over at reddit, reddit.com slash r slash chatspod, where folks are talking about previous and current seasons. And you can also discuss the show with your friends, fellow listeners in our Discord. That is a what's the word perk 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 that is a perk for membership in our patreon a dollar and up one dollar and up gets you access again to the discord and to some a smattering of bonus episodes three dollars and up gets you access to twice monthly bonus content and a backlog of triple digit bonus episodes of various kinds And $5 a month gets you thanked right here at the end of our main feed episodes. Thank you to our $5 patrons, Stefan, Six, Fendon, Pat and Nick of the Brothers at Infinite War, Michael, Marin, Marcus, my mom, Lee, Kat, Jen, and Arthur. Thank you, folks, for supporting the show. You can rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can visit our website, chatspod.com. You can support at Camillustrator, who created our podcast art. And you can be good to each other out there and make the world a better place. Yeah. That'd be nice, too. Yeah. Alan, we'd, we'd like to end our episodes with Chatsum's suggestions for the folks to snack on between now and next time. What's your Chatsum for us here? Um, oh, my God. I just had the best Chatsum. Frick, where did it go? Looking through my tabs. Looking through my... Oh, uh, Tales from the Bounty Hunters. It said it's a Star Wars book that I've been reading and feeling surprisingly emotional about. You know me, though. I, I do be like that. I do be feeling things about robots. Um, it's a book and part of a Tales of series from the Star Wars Legends canon um, about the bounty hunters that appeared in Episode 5. That's IG-88, Boba Fett, uh, Dengar, and Bosk. There might be one more that I'm not remembering right now, but those are the main guys. And they each get their little short story that kind of explains where they were leading up to that big moment in Cloud City and lets us learn a lot about the Star Wars world, how it treats droids and bounty hunters as a profession. It's kind of a useful text, and it's a bummer that it's Legends now because I think 
um, Kevin J. Anderson, who edited it, kind of like chose the most interesting parts of each of their lives and, and set it right in that time period. So, um, yeah, it's it's a lot better than I expected. I just finished the whole IG-88 part and I started the Dengar part and it's really good so far. So check out Tales from the Bounty Hunters if you're looking for a little uh, some sci-fi fluff. John, what about you? I, when I was in France, wanted to read a book that felt relevant to my experience there. And so I was reading a book of poetry in translation from Ooh. French to English, a book of poetry called Illuminations by Arthur Rim, Rimbo, Rimbaud, Rimbaud. I don't know how you would say his I name. I say Rimbo. Rim, Rimbo. Mm-hmm. R-I-M-B-A-U-D. Mm-hmm. translated by john ashbury one of my favorite poets uh, and it was nice because the french on the left side the english on the right side so i got to learn a couple words uh as i was reading so i'd recommend that book and also just in general reading poetry and translation when you're in a foreign country as a way to do some light uh language immersion or, or learning as you're reading while you're over there so yeah hmm. i love that I love that a lot. Uh, what was it called again? Illuminations. Boyfict. Uh, I'm trying to figure out what to call you here at the end. I had a funny thing. Oh, sure. I got it. I got it, you guys. Don't worry about it. I figured it out. I know what I'm going to call Magellan now. Thank you so much for listening. Um, for Magellan, for being the bulky to my Larry Appleton. The Balky Bartokom, got the two guys from Perfect Strangers, okay? Uh, to my, the other guy from Perfect Strangers. You can be Mark Lynn Baker. I'll be Bronson Pinchot. How about that? So you can be Larry. I'll thank be you. Balky. Yes, of course. Thank you. And thank you, dear listener, for listening to this episode of the Chatsovers. Peace. Bye.